That word breath in the Hebrew is the same as the word for spirit, ruach, which means that you can, you can transpose either one of those in scripture and, and it's still true and it's part of what it's saying. You can look at Genesis 1 where it says the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters before creation. And you can instead say the breath of God was hovering over the waters. His breath was baited in anticipation as he was about to breathe his goodness all over creation. Or in Genesis 2.7 that you just saw, instead of reading it, he breathed the breath of life into Adam, you could read it, he breathed his spirit of life into Adam. Or a few thousand years later, when God himself was on a cross, and the Gospel of John says that as he was tortured and, and died, he gave up his spirit. You could read that as he gave out his breath. He breathed his last and breathed it out over each and every one of us, filling us with his breath, with his spirit. It's a real shame that we've come to associate intentional breathing and meditation with like Eastern religions uh, and yoga and Buddhism and, th and things that good Christians wouldn't be a part of because in fact, this idea of breathing is a way to connect with this spirit of God that he breathed into us. It's biblical, it harkens us back to creation and it connects us with the divine that God has intentionally placed within us. So I hope you've gotten your breathing in just now, that you've connected with the divine in you because we're gonna go for a roller coaster ride this morning. So strap your listening ears on and let's do this thing. Let's see where God's gonna take us today. And so first I'm gonna start with this question and I'm gonna tell you up front, it's a loaded, loaded question. Why do you come to church? Why do you go to church? What's the point? If you're just here because you like the messages, you think Deanna and I do a good job preaching, you know what guys, there are a lot of great preachers out there and we live in the age of the internet. You could watch any of them anytime you like. You could go watch the best guys, Andy Stanley, Stephen Furtick, you could go watch Timothy Keller. And the best part is you wouldn't even have to pay their salaries. Like you just go on and there they are. Is it for the worship? You come for worship, for singing? Honestly, I think it's a little weird to come into a room and sing songs with a bunch of people you don't know. I mean, these are the same songs, you got them on the radio, you got them on Spotify, you don't need to come to church to sing these songs. Is it to be refreshed by the word and truth of God? Well, you, you've all got Bibles. You, you could read the word, say up a little prayer, and hit the golf course before it gets too crowded. You don't need to come here. And the worst part is there's things here that are, that are awkward and, and weird. This is the only place I know of where we make you stand up and say hi to strangers that you don't know. Everywhere else just lets you ignore them. And when you look at unbelievers or atheists, people that don't have this church obligation, it sure must be nice to be able to sleep in on a Sunday morning, go for a weekend trip to the lake without guilt, take a hike, go for a walk in the park. Are they really missing out on anything by not having a church obligation in their weekend? Or are they living lives that are just fine and maybe even a little more joyful than ours? I had a member come up to me at a wedding a few years ago and, and kind of shamefacedly say, oh, Pastor, I haven't been to church in a while, but it's all right. Don't worry. I already know that I'm going to heaven. Okay. If that's all church is, if it's just a, a weekly reminder of your eternal life insurance, then I don't know that he is making any wrong choices at all. 
And when we look at our family priorities and we've got kids that we're trying to set up for success and they've got select leagues that have tournaments on the weekends and I'm given the choice, well, do I need to be reminded I'm going to heaven or do I need to set my kid up for future success? It's no wonder church loses out. Why do we go to church? Now, I'll tell you one thing that I know for a fact it isn't. I know one reason why none of you would be coming to church and it's to receive help in the midst of mental health struggles. In fact, when Barna, uh, which is a Christian research group, when they ask young people, people 40 and under, why they don't go to church anymore, the answer is because it's irrelevant to the actual problems in my life. And that's just in broad strokes, but when it comes to something like mental health, I think more often people have experienced something like what this particular writer wrote. This is a, a, a regular writer for Relevant Magazine. This is a Christian magazine. She wrote this about her own experiences with depression. She said, I find it hard to confess that I was emotionally wounded because you might question my faith. Worse yet, you'd probably accuse me of not trusting God enough or tell me that worry is a sin so I should just stop worrying. Because if I told you that I'd been feeling numb, lonely, or depressed, you might accuse me of not praying enough, not reading the Bible enough, or applying it correctly. And so therefore you might be tempted to think that people who read the Bible every day, people who trust in Jesus and not drugs, certainly shouldn't be suffering from something like depression. But that isn't true. At best, the modern institutional church has ignored mental health issues. But at worst, it has demonized and minimalized those things. It's taken them as proof that your faith isn't good enough. And yet hopefully we see the, uh, the absolute foolishness of that. That'd be saying, it'd be the same thing as saying, oh, if you just trusted Jesus enough, you'd never break your leg. If you just trusted Jesus enough, you'd never get sick. If you just trusted Jesus enough, you'd never have depression. We wouldn't say it about any of those other things. Why do we say it about mental health? Especially when, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, one in five Americans is struggling from it right now. Look around the room, guys. One in five of you. And yet if there's one place you wouldn't dare to admit or confess that, it's right here in church. In fact, Google just had to unveil a new tool earlier this year that now if someone Googles depression or clinical depression, it pops up a questionnaire that actually lets you fill it out to figure out if you are depressed. And, and here's why Google said they did it. They did it so that people could get access to help without the, the shame or social stigma of having to tell a doctor or someone that they know. But all that's done is reinforce the isolation reinforce the loneliness and the disconnection because it's saying if you are depressed, you don't dare let anyone else know Google's the only one who you can tell. But I don't think that's what Christian community is supposed to be like. I don't think that's what church is supposed to be, a place where you have to keep secret the struggles that you have. And as exhibit A to make my case, I wanna go back about 500 years to when a man named Jerome Weller wrote a letter to his monk, his priest, the person that he trusted with his spiritual growth, and he confessed that he was struggling with depression. 
or they didn't use that word in the 1500s, uh, he called it a state of melancholy, and that he even was worried that he might commit suicide. Now, this is the Middle Ages. <laughs> this is not as enlightened of a time as we have now. This is a time where they put people in stocks, where uh, if someone was sick, you put leeches on them to bleed them out. That was the height of medical expertise. And where, by definition, theologically, if someone committed suicide, you would go to hell. There was no ifs, ands, or buts. This was black and white. It was clear. And so what do you think was the response that this monk wrote to Jerome Weller when he dared to admit that he was depressed and suicidal? Well, let's see what Martin Luther wrote. He said to his friend Jerome, you say that your burden is heavier than you can bear and that you fear that it will break and beat you down so much so that you might curse God and commit suicide. I know this scheme of the devil. If he cannot break a person with his first attack, he persists to attempt to wear him out and weaken him until the person falls and surrenders the fight. Notice that Luther doesn't start out with condemnation. He doesn't start out with, with telling him, you know, you're wrong, you're terrible. You know, he starts out by saying, I know this scheme of the devil. I've experienced it personally. He empathizes. He understands. And then he continues on with his advice. He says, so whenever this temptation of melancholy, depression, comes at you, avoid an argument with the devil by not allowing yourself to dwell on your anxiety. Don't just stay in a room just kind of thinking about it over and over again, for to do so is nothing short of yielding to the devil and letting him have his way with you. Reject those thoughts which are induced by the devil. And in these kinds of struggles, you must show contempt for the devil if you wish to defeat him. Laugh at him, scorn him, and ask him who he thinks he is. Most importantly, avoid being alone. For the devil becomes most dangerous to you when you are alone. The devil is conquered by mocking and insulting him, not by, in your privacy alone, trying to resist and argue with him and beat him all by yourself. Therefore, Jerome, joke and frolic with my wife and others. That's the best way to rid yourself of diabolical thoughts and to be strong. Go Find friends. Don't be alone. Don't be isolated. Don't stay in the privacy of a Google search, but go find people to share in joy and delight with. This is the answer. Not privacy and shame and stigma and isolation. The answer is to find people. Now, I want to pause here and, and do a side note because I didn't emphasize this enough last week when we talked about anxiety, and so I, I want to hit it here again today. This is the advice for people who are still uh, at kind of a normal level of functional. And when we talked about anxiety last week and saying you, know, you need to turn your choices over to God, trust that he's going to bring good outcomes, that's true. There are people who have experienced trauma. They are traumatized. And they can't even get to that truth. There are people who would be great for them to socialize and hang out with people. They can't even get there because they're damaged and they're hurting. Let me put it another way. If someone's asking me, they say, I want to win a race. I want to do really well in a race. And I would say, the right 
advice, the wisdom is you need to go running every day. You need to do a lot of weights on your legs, go to the gym and do squats, you know, work out your leg muscles. These are the right things to do to win a race, unless your leg is broken. In which case, if you do those things, it's just going to make it worse. First, you got to get your leg in a cast. You got to spend some time on crutches. And then we're going to get to the running and the exercising and the weightlifting. If you've been traumatized, if you've been injured, you have to fix the injury first. And so the advice last week and the advice right here and now, this is for people who are healthy enough, able enough to take this step. And if you're not, you need more help and that's okay. Some people, they need a medication before they can even get their brain out of a feedback loop of anxiety. Some people, they cannot muster up the energy to even seek out others and to have joy and frolic. Uh, with others because they need something to just release that, that weight of doom that's upon them. And it's okay to fix that first. So if you need to hear someone up here say that to you, it's okay to need more things. Some of us have different levels of injury and we're going to need a variety of things to bring us to healing. And frankly, more of us have trauma than we might realize. And we might not... Uh, think of it that way, we might not think we need medication, and yet how many of us have just a nice drink at the end of the day just to take the edge off the stress and the worry? How many of us spend hours just scrolling through the phone because that's a way of soothing our mind when we get so caught up uh, in the stress of life? More of us than we'd like to admit have trauma, and it's okay to find things that are going to help you soothe it so that you can get out of that feedback loop and in to the wisdom that God and this particular monk might have for you. So here's what's amazing is Luther continues on with his advice. He says, be of good courage, therefore, and cast troubling thoughts out of your mind. Whenever the devil pesters you with these thoughts, seek out a party, drink more, joke and goof off. Or do something else really inane. Sometimes we have to drink a little more, play, joke, or even commit a sin. To show our contempt of the devil so that we prove to him that his little guilt trips don't work on us. You'll ruin yourself if all you do is worry about sinning. So if the devil should say to you, you better not drink, you must reply to him, well, devil, since you told me not to, I'm going to drink. And you know what? I'm going to drink a lot. In other words, we must always do the opposite of that which Satan prohibits. See, these, these thoughts, these attacks of the devil, they work best in isolation. He is the father of the guilt trip. And he wants nothing more than for us to be so isolated, so paralyzed, so stuck in a loop that we're just sitting here feeling like I'm so broken, I'm so damaged, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can do, and we just stay there and the devil wins. And Luther's saying, no, no, get out, enjoy life, and sure, drink a lot, because here's the point, how much trouble can you actually get in if you're out in a public place with people you love and who love you and you're just enjoying life together? And maybe that's having a drink together. I know I enjoy that with my friends. Maybe it's just playing games or, or going and playing golf or some sort of sport or, or whatever it is. Um, I just found out that there's a 40 million strong knitting club across America. Great, do that. But the point is, whatever it is that you find people who love you and that you do these things with them because guess who can't really mess with your head when you're out in public with people you love and you're sharing in life? 
And it seems maybe a little irresponsible for someone to, a Christian leader to be saying, oh yeah, you should drink even more. That'll really show the devil. You know, didn't they know about addictions back then? And we live in a time where we need to take this seriously because we are in the middle of an addiction crisis. We have people who are so uh, overwhelmed by, by opioids or drugs or alcohol, or even now Facebook has been classified as an addiction. You can get treated for Facebook addiction. Don't we need to take this even more seriously? I, I think we do, but in fact, I think that we have gotten it mixed up. That we have mistaken addiction as the cause when in fact it's the symptom of something much more tragic. And to give a little glimpse of that, I'm about to show an animated video that distills some scientific research. Uh, and just to set it up, this scientist noticed that one of our largest demographics of heroin users in our country is grandmas and grandpas. And yet, it doesn't play out for them the same way it does for others. So watch this video and uh, see what this scientist has to say. If you, for example, break your hip, you'll be taken to a hospital and you'll be given loads of diamorphine for weeks or even months. Diamorphine is heroin. It's in fact much stronger heroin than any addict can get on the street because it's not contaminated by all the stuff drug dealers dilute it with. There are people near you being given loads of deluxe heroin in hospitals right now. So at least some of them should become addicts. But this has been closely studied. It doesn't happen. Your grandmother wasn't turned into a junkie by her hip replacement. Why is that? Our current theory of addiction comes in part from a series of experiments that were carried out earlier in the 20th century. The experiment is simple. You take a rat and put it in a cage with two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with heroin or cocaine. Almost every time you run this experiment, the rat will become obsessed with the drugged water and keep coming back for more and more until it kills itself. But in the 1970s, Bruce Alexander, a professor of psychology, noticed something odd about this experiment. The rat is put in the cage all alone. It has nothing to do but take the drugs. What would happen, he wondered, if we tried this differently? So he built Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. It's a lush cage where the rats would have colored balls, tunnels to scamper down, plenty of friends to play with, and they could have loads of sex, everything a rat about town could want and they would have the drugged water and the normal water bottles. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, rats hardly ever use the drugged water. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. It's not the chemicals, it's your cage. We need to think about addiction differently. Human beings have an innate need to bond and connect. When we are happy and healthy, we will bond with the people around us. But when we can't, because we're traumatized, isolated, or beaten down by life, we will bond with something that gives us some sense of relief. That scientist concludes his research with this quote. He says, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And yet, how have we in modern times responded or treated people when they have an addiction? We send them away to rehab or we put them in prison. And either way, we're separating them from the connections with the people who love them and would be for them. We take away those things that would actually give them a reason not to be addicted to whatever it is that they're connecting with. Or when we try to treat them 
we put them off in a room and we say, all right, you have, you have to be anonymous over here because you can't actually admit to anyone publicly that this is something you are. And so we're going to just pretend that it's a secret, it's a shame, it's something that, uh, that we don't want to actually admit. Or we say to loved ones, we say, hey, I love you so much, but I can't have you in my life right now until you get your act together. And so we, we shut them off and we sever them and we deny them the very thing that they need in the world. Maybe the issue is not that we have an addiction problem, a drug problem, an alcohol problem, an opioid problem. Maybe it's that we have a disconnection problem. And that as our houses have gotten bigger, our connections have gotten fewer. And so we need to find some way to create a community, a safe place where people can actually go and not feel that they have to live in shame or privacy. They have to have a community that says, we're connected with you no matter what. Now, theoretically, that sounds like something that we've heard of, but in practice, I don't think we always have it. But now that we're thinking about this in a new way, that, that we've isolated that there's this connection thing that we have to figure out, let's look at a passage of Scripture that describes what the church looked like in the early days of faith. So we go to James chapter 5, which talks about archipelagos, connections are better than islands. And let's look at what James has to say. He says, is there anyone among you in trouble, suffering, hurting, depressed, despairing? Let them pray together. Is anyone happy? Let them sing together songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. And if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, oh no, go back. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. See, this is why we should go to church is because church was designed to be a place where you received connection and healing, where the elders would come together, where you'd confess your sins to each other, you'd pray for each other, and healing would follow. See, not just physical healing, but but holistic healing, your mind and your body, because the prayers of righteous people are powerful and effective. And if this is church, then I would absolutely want to be here every week. But we need to be honest, we need to scrupulously look at ourselves. For many people, for a lot of us, this has not been church. It's not what we've grown up with. We haven't grown up with a place where you receive healing and connection with people. We've grown up in a place where you've received judgment and exclusion. And why is that? I have a a really strong theory. Here's why. It's because we understand one word from one verse wrong. This is verse 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. And I don't know about you, but I hear confess, and what do I picture? I picture a, a wooden booth where you kind of skulk in, and there's a priest who's waiting for you and, you, and he asks you, first thing is, how long has it been since your last confession? And then you tell him, and, and then he said, all right, well, you're a terrible person, but here's what you do. You say a few th- prayers, or you, you make it right, and we're going to fix it. Or I picture a bunch of guys in an accountability group, and the one guy says, guys, I'm sorry, I'm looking at things on the computer I'm not supposed to be. And all the other guys say, well, get your act together, man, because God called you to be a husband and a father and a holy warrior, and so you can't be doing that junk. 
I picture someone saying, hi, I'm Nancy, and, and I'm an alcoholic, and she's off in a room where no one else wants to admit that they are. That is not what this word means. We have tragically diminished and reduced and misunderstood this word. In fact, we're going to go into the Greek. This word in the Greek is actually a mashup. It's a compound word of five different concepts. Okay? This word in Greek is exomologeomai. And it's long because they literally took five words and shunked them together. Exomologeomai. What it means literally is to outwardly say the same thing together. To outwardly say the same thing together. Exomologeomai. And so that covers a wide range of things all throughout the New Testament. It's used to mean a bunch of things. That's when we all get together and we say, who is this God we believe in? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's exomo logeomai. We outwardly say together the same thing about this God that we believe in. Or another example, when you're, when you're at the stadium and, and the blues uh, have just won the Stanley Cup and you're all singing Gloria together, that's exomo logeomai. You're outwardly singing the same thing together. Or in this context, it's a bunch of people in a room saying, man, guys, I struggle with disconnection from God and from people in my life. And I fill that disconnection. I fill it with alcohol or drugs or porn or Facebook. I fill it with all these things. And then everybody else in the room outwardly says the same thing together. And they say, me too, man. But we're all in this with you. This is the picture of church. And that's why our traditional understanding of confession has, is so tragically wrong because there is nothing about it that matches the meaning. It's not outward, you hide it in a booth or in a private room. It's not saying the same thing together because it's a priest or a confessor saying, I've got my act together, you're the idiot whose life is broken. And you're not doing it together because there's no actual sharing. It's one person just getting beat up for all the junk in their life. Our understanding of confession has actually driven disconnection, isolation, loneliness, depression. Because it wasn't what you were supposed to be getting. See, a holy community is a place where you outwardly say the same thing together. Where you understand and share and include no matter how bad something is. Uh, Larry Crabb puts it this way uh, in his book, Connecting, when he's describing holy communities of faith. He says this. He says, it's not the job of the community to change people, to fix them, to correct them, to tell them why they're wrong or how they're screwing up their life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. The central calling of community is to connect, not to challenge or condemn to release something powerful from within one person into the life of another that calls forth the goodness in another's heart. And I want to leave that up for a minute. Just Do you see that? To connect with the goodness in another's heart. And you might think not everyone has goodness in their heart, but, but this is part of the promise of Scripture. Because everyone, certainly everyone who's here in this space has been breathed into by the spirit of life himself. That you've got a piece of God in you and I've got a piece of God in me. And that part of us can connect no matter what else is screwing up our lives. 
that I can choose to see all of the mistakes or the addictions or the brokenness, or I can choose to look for that piece of you that is God transforming you more and more into Christ. And I can let that spirit in me bring out, fan into flame that breath of God, that spirit in you. That's what holy community is supposed to be. That's what James 5 is describing. Now that's, that's big and that's broad. And maybe that feels a little overwhelming and complex. So let me break it down with a couple of steps for you today. I want to talk about the difference between a disconnecting, hurting community versus a healing, connecting community. And it's all about how struggling is met. See, if someone shares struggling whether it's uh, physical, whether it's mental, whether you know, I'm depressed, I- I'm addicted, I- I'm-, I'm hurting. When they share struggling, we choose what we meet other people struggling with. We can meet it with superiority and criticism. Get your act together, get it right. Ah, I've got it right, be like me. And if, we, and if it's met with that, then the result is only, will ever be condemnation. Or, when someone shares with another person, when, when, when they reach out, when they strive for connection and they share their struggling, it could be met instead with empathy and inclusion. Saying, I've been there, I know that feeling, and you're still good enough to be in this group of people. And then that results in restoration. Now this is a distillation of, of the best uh, counseling psychological science that we have today. And it might be tempting, therefore, to write that off as Christians say, oh, I don't need any of that touchy-feely, psycho-babble, you know, pop-babble stuff. Except that if you notice that these people, these psychologists, these counselors, as they broke this out, they accidentally stumbled upon the biblical story. This is literally the, the story of how God interacted with his people. See, God saw people who were struggling and broken and hurting and he did not say, well, too bad for you, you, you pathetic human beings on earth. I'm up in heaven where life is great. And you guys can't even keep my Ten Commandments. Until you get that right, there's nothing I have for you. And then he condemned all of us to hell. That's not what God did. And in fact, when you look at the Bible, when you look at God's story, this is instead what God did. God saw us struggling in our brokenness. And he became a human being so that he could suffer with us. So that as a human made flesh, God could experience the worst of everything up to death on the cross. And then even as we were the ones who tortured him and put him to death, he still included us in Christ prayed, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And he still wants us to be in his covenant and in his family. And it's that act of God that has resulted in the saving and the restoration of the whole world. It's not just psychobabble. This is actually the model of how God interacted and connected with us, which then means this becomes the model of how we can create a connecting, healing community, a la James 5. So let me give you some examples to help unpack this, because I know this maybe is hard to, to wrestle with. So let, let's run through a few things. Picture the kid at the dinner table. And as they're sitting at the dinner table, they keep kind of rocking back in their chair. And you just say to them, don't lean back in your chair. Don't lean back in your chair. You're going to hurt yourself. Don't lean back. And then inevitably, they don't listen to you, and they keep rocking back. And then the moment comes where they push back. 
and they conk their head and they're bawling on the floor and you rush over to them and you say, what do you say? I told you not to do that. But do you see what we're doing? In their pain, in their struggling, we're showing superiority. I knew not to do that. We're criticizing them. You didn't listen to me. And what does that kid learn? They learn that when I am hurting my mother, my father, they will shame me. They will judge me. They are not a safe place for me to hurt. But what if instead when our kid fell and instead of responding the way that is so natural to all of us, instead we went over and said, oh my gosh, but that looks like that hurts so bad. I'm so sorry. I've been there. And then you hug them and you hold them in your arms and you include them and you say, but it's okay. You're going to feel better soon. And then what do they learn? That you are safe no matter what happened to them. No matter what bad choices, you are a source of safety and restoration. Or think about it this way. Uh, about three years ago, I instituted some new men's events called the Bro Events, and it's, it's barbecues and Oktoberfest and a casino. And I've gotten some perplexity from some of our members over that. They say, we're a church. Are, are we just trying to be edgy? Are we just trying to, to show how hip and cool we are having a casino event? Shouldn't we be doing more Bible studies and less poker? <laughs> it's, a, it's a fair question. And this is my answer is because people have seen Bible studies. And when they've gone to Bible studies, what have they found? They've found hurting disconnection. They found people who are so smug and they know the Bible so much better and they're just telling everyone else how to live their life. And they've found a place of condemnation and judgment and shame. And people don't need more Bible studies like that. Now we don't do Bible studies like that here. I, I don't think, I hope that we don't. But you know what maybe would be a way to persuade people who've been burned, who've been hurt, who think the church is not a place of inclusion and empathy? Is maybe let's play a little poker. Maybe let's say to the men of West County, say, guys, we get it. Life's hard and you've got so many things pulling at you. You've got bosses telling you what to do and, and, a, and a wife you're trying to be a good husband to and kids you're trying to live up to their, to their thinking of you. You've got all of these pressures. You know what's maybe nice is to have a few beers with some guys, play some poker, be part of the group because we just want you here with no expectation, with no burden. See, people are willing to believe that about a barbecue or an Oktoberfest, that maybe it's a place where they could receive empathy or inclusion. They don't believe that about a Bible study. And so those are not just us trying to be cool or trying to get people in the doors. That's actually us trying to live out this model of healing connection, a community where people find empathy, inclusion, and ultimately down the road, saving, healing, restoration. And so maybe for you at a one-on-one -on -one level, think about all of the times that someone has come to you with struggles and think about the ways that we tend to respond to that. Someone tells us about some failure in their life or a thing that they messed up and, and something that, that went badly and, and we're so tempted to give advice and it's well-intended advice. We really mean, oh, well, I just did this. But what does advice do? It shows that you got this right and they're getting it wrong. And what if instead when someone came to you with struggling or, or with something that had just messed up and a mistake they'd made, if instead you just said to them, I believe in you. You got this. I know you do. And it's not fake. It's not empty. It's not a platitude. It's because you're connecting to the spirit of God that's in them that will not let them be put to shame. Or when someone uh, is saying, uh, they're coming to you and, and they're hurting and you just say to them, I hurt too. 
I hurt with you. Let's hurt together. Now you're living James 5.16 because now you're outwardly saying the same thing together. And when someone comes to you with a problem or an addiction or something that they really have messed up, and instead of piling on being one more voice of criticism that says, yeah, you really did screw that up, to instead just simply say to them, I forgive you. You got a place with me. And there's nothing you could do that would actually take away your place with me. Because that's the language God speaks to us. You see, there's this amazing uh, coda, this end to this picture of church that James paints in chapter 5. He says this, he says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and get lost and stuck, and someone else should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And because we've misunderstood that word confess, confession, because we've understood it as judgment and isolation, we've thought that this verse here means you gotta go out and you gotta find them in their sinning ways and you gotta yell at them and you gotta tell them why they're wrong and you gotta say, until you get your act together, you don't have a place here. That's not actually what this is describing. It's saying that when someone wanders away and they're stuck in paths of sin, or not even sin, hurting, brokenness, despair, and instead all you say to them is, come on back, brother. Come on back, sister. We're here for you. You don't have to make them uh, you know, confess this thing in shame. You don't have to make them crawl on their knees and prostrate themselves because their multitude of sins has already been covered over by Jesus. The blood of the lamb has already covered over their multitude of sins. You don't actually have to do any of that work. It's not your burden or your responsibility. Your only responsibility is to beckon them back to say, you've got a spot in this community. And each and every week when we meet here, this is an opportunity for you to be restored, to be beckoned back, to be in a place where healing is the rule, where empathy and inclusion is the source of our connection with each other, where the breath of God in me meets the breath of God in you and we restore each other jointly. That's why we need to come to church. Now, if you are currently one of the one in five who is struggling with disconnection, isolation, depression, I encourage you to find someone, to, to make that initial step of connection, whatever it might be. And if you don't feel that there's anyone in this place that you know well enough or that you can trust, that, that you're close enough with, then please, please, find a counselor. There are a lot of good Christian counselors out there, but even the ones that aren't Christian, counselors, they understand this better than a lot of us. They understand empathy and inclusion, and you will find a safe place there while we as a church get our act together to become this place a little more. And if you are not someone who is currently struggling with that, then I ask you to join me in being people who make this a healing, connecting community to take all of your advice and your wisdom and your criticism and your correction and just put it in a drawer and to resolve for the next song, try it for a week, that when someone comes to you with struggling or sin or brokenness or addiction, 
to just meet them with empathy and inclusion, to say, oh, I've been there. I know that attack of the devil, and you've always got a place with me. And if we do that, I think very soon we will make this a place that is worth coming to week in and week out. And we will be a place where others find healing and growth and restoration unlike anything they can get anywhere in the world. So let's do that together. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I give you thanks for this picture that you have given us, your people, that you modeled it for us first, that when we were hurting, when we were struggling, when we were dealing with depression or addiction or sin, that you met us with empathy and inclusion. And Lord, I pray that we would transmit that same grace on to those who are struggling around us. Lord, help transform this place with your Holy Spirit. Breathe your breath of life over each person here so that we would become agents of your empathy and inclusion, that we would bring about growth and restoration through the love and the compassion that we have for people who are hurting. Pray all this in your holy name. Amen. The only reason we can do this the only reason we can be a source of connection that heals is because we all have the Holy Spirit of God in us. And so I invite you now to join with me as we claim outwardly with one voice at the same thing together, as we call down God and his Holy Spirit to be present in this place, to fill our hearts, to fill the atmosphere so that we would be a place of healing connection. Would you please stand and sing with me?